G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day folks and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. We're getting into season three now, picking up steam, but surprisingly this is the first time that we're actually getting into the text of Genesis 3, even though we've already had two episodes to get us ready for it. So that should be plenty of background to get us started on the right foot. We'll get into the text in a moment. So we saw God create the cosmos and establish a calendar of sorts, both set in the stars and in the structure of the working week. Then we watched as he chose a man to have dominion under God over the land, and this man learned about family and responsibility. He's not portrayed as a child, but nevertheless, we see him coming of age in this narrative. So responsibility, calendar, and community are central, according to this author, along with a sense that God has put everything in order, or at least modelled order, for humanity to emulate on a larger scale. And we already saw some subtle allusions to the idea that some things were not quite right in those first two chapters. The question we have as readers then is, will the man and his wife take hold of this commission to bring order to the world, or will they choose something else? And of course we know the story, they will fail, but we're not reading this to find out what happens, we want to know how this works. Here's our text, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, so I'm just going to cut down some potential arguments about the identity of the serpent here before we get started by pointing out that if your version of the Bible uses the word other in this verse, as if to say, the serpent was more cunning than all the other wild animals. Well, I hate to do this to you, but that word is not in the Hebrew text. That matters because it means that we're not identifying the serpent as a wild animal. He's not one of the beasts of the field. I did mention that last week, but I'm just putting it out there. We'll come back to that point shortly, but let's get into this properly. We talked about the serpent last time in some detail, so I'm not going to rehash that entire conversation. But let's talk about this idea of him being cunning or clever, or subtle, as your translation may have it. It makes him sound like he's already a bad guy. Is that what it means? Well, it's actually connected to wisdom rather than evil. There's a play on words here, which I alluded to toward the end of last season, without revealing, but now is the time to talk about it. So in case you're wondering what it is, I'll explain. We're going to get a bit of a sense of what this terminology really says to us. It's actually quite intuitive once you get your head around it, but it's no surprise that in our modern culture we usually don't get the joke. The word that is translated cunning here, or whatever you have in your translation, whether it be subtle or clever or something like that, that word in Hebrew is arum. It only gets used about a dozen times in the whole Bible. I find actually this is a bit easier to digest when you read the ESV because this word is translated either as crafty, as you find it here, or as prudent as seen in other examples of this word's use. Uh, for example, if you look in the Proverbs, it seems to be a better fit than the CSB, which instead of prudent uses sensible. And when you hear words like cunning and crafty and that kind of thing, it doesn't generally lend itself to situations where you could equally use something like prudent or sensible. We don't imagine the serpent in the garden being prudent or sensible. <laughs> no, we don't imagine the serpent being like, did God really say that you shouldn't run with scissors? I don't think that's such a good idea. Or make sure you pack an umbrella before you go wandering in the garden. It looks like rain. 
Yeah, that really is nothing like what we imagine when we read Genesis 3. Some Bible versions will use a word like shrewd in this passage, and I think that's actually a really good choice. The problem is that it never gets paired up with an appropriate matching word, which we'll talk about in a second. Shrewdness kind of walks the line between crafty and prudent. We're talking about the kind of wisdom that you have, which is oriented around getting results quickly and effectively and with a certain degree of tact. This was a highly valued trait in ancient Near Eastern culture because of its orientation around achieving a particular goal with a minimum of effort. When you live off the land, everything is about conserving energy, so being able to get quick and effective results, particularly while avoiding conflict, is important. This is the kind of wisdom that is usually only acquired as a benefit of maturity, or perhaps as the fruit of a highly intelligent mind. And whichever way you look at it, the man and his wife in the garden here didn't have either, as far as we can tell. As for the serpent, whether he is older, wiser, or both, Anyway, you look at it, he has the advantage, and if we dive into some scriptures that come later and do some theologizing, we can find out, of course, that the serpent is all of these things. But we don't need that now. What we need to understand is that the man and his wife in this story are outmatched. So I mentioned that there was a play on words here, and we'll look at it now. We're going back to the end of chapter 2, which sounds like a lot of effort until you realize that in the original manuscript, there was no division between chapters 2 and 3. So the wordplay is kind of ruined by the enormous gap in the subheadings and having to turn the page and all that kind of thing. So let's pretend it isn't there. Here's chapter 2, verse 25, followed by 3, verse 1a. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Now you can't see this in English, but the Hebrew words for naked and cunning are actually very similar. The man and his wife were both Arumim, or the serpent was Arum. So you should be able to see the relationship between these words, and it's not just rhyming, it's a similarity in function. So the humans were nude and the serpent was shrewd. Yeah, so there you go, we can rhyme it in English too. Why don't any of the translations do this? But what we can't do so easily is get these two words to play off each other based on their meaning and their function. Because a rhyme is cool, but mastery of... Hebrew poetic form is all about developing ideas in parallel rather than sounds. And if you get both, like here in this example, that's next level. So what's actually going on here in this interesting passage? Well, to be naked is to be devoid of anything unnecessary or extraneous. You know, the body is purely the mechanism by which work is achieved. So to be naked is to be all business, nothing unnecessary, no frills. And to be shrewd or crafty is to act without any wasted time or effort. The wisdom is the manner in which work is most efficiently done. In both cases, we're talking about terminology that implies a reduction to pure function. So these two terms play off each other because on the one hand, you have the man and the woman who are equipped to work according to the instruction they were given. And on the other, you have a creature of superior intellect challenging them to think about what they're doing and using his shrewdness to cause doubt and fear that perhaps they ought to be ashamed of not being adequately equipped for their task. This now casts new light on the concept of shame that we talked about last season by throwing these terms for nakedness and shrewdness in opposition to one another. We can also talk about shame in the sense of the performance of function. We've all heard before about the worker that needs not be ashamed. 2 Timothy 2.15. I'll give you this one from the ESV. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, 
rightly handling the word of truth. To be adequately equipped for the work that God gives us to do, we need only obey and nothing else is required. When we respond correctly to God's word, we are not ashamed before him. Therefore, for the man and woman in the Garden of Eden, their nakedness, their purity and simplicity was sufficient. They had no shame because they lacked nothing that was needed. And yet the serpent challenged them with a different point of view. He's got them beat here because he knows how to get under their skin, so to speak. When the text says he was more cunning than any beast of the field, it's not about comparing the serpent against a donkey or a sheep. This is a connection back to chapter 2. The man had mastery over the beasts of the field, as we saw by his ability to name them. And we've talked about what that means. But this guy, the serpent, he's not a dumb animal. And the humans haven't got him mastered. The serpent isn't named because nobody, not the man, nor the woman, nor even the reader of this text, and that's you, has mastery over him. Let's get some perspective here. God gave this man dominion over everything and then gave him his wife to help him in the task of bringing everything into order. Humans were made after divine beings according to scripture, and yet the God-given authority of man in the garden appears to be unchallenged until the serpent comes along. Here we have a divine being who is not prepared to accept the status quo as laid out by God, and so begins the divine rebellion. Mm, never really thought about it like that. So you're saying that this is the full of the first divine creature, really. Yeah, yeah, and I say that the divine rebellion begins here because although there is intense pressure from many people to push the fall of the divine rebel further back in time into some kind of pre-Adamic civilization, we just have no evidence of it from the text. In fact, if we really believe the words of Ezekiel chapter 28, we have to conclude that this divine rebel was faultless until such time as iniquity was found in him, a situation which arose in the Garden of Eden and which is described for us right here in Genesis chapter 3. There's no need to try to go back further to find it. I get a bit tired of people trying to do the whole chicken and egg thing when it's spelled out so clearly for us. Again, I mentioned that last week, but unfortunately, that's what you get from people who have a pet doctrine to defend. And in this case, that would be the gap theory or some variant on that. I have addressed the gap theory before. For those who came in late, you'll find it early in season one where I go into a bit of a discussion, or you might call it a rant, around the wording of the first few verses of Genesis 1 and the way that the text precludes the notion of a gap between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2 by showing that the creation of the heavens and the earth is in fact a process that God takes delight in unfolding over a period of time and which continues to this day as man continues the work of bringing order to the world around us. This also destroys the whole chaos camp theory, which suggests that there was some kind of primordial battle between God and a chaos monster that resulted in the material creation of the universe. I think that whole notion is a mistake in view of creation as material origins rather than simply the establishment of order in a pre-created material universe. When I say pre-created, I simply mean that God really did create the material universe, but that was before the establishment of order in it. And that whole process from the creation of the material universe right through the ordering of it is collectively a single creative process. But when we read Genesis 1, we're getting the ordering component of creation rather than the material origins component, which wasn't a concern of Hebrew thought until the Hellenistic period. And that's why I say that if people are concerned with material creation, then they need to be getting that from the New Testament rather than from Genesis 1. Again, we covered that before. Do you want to know the secret to being happy in Bible study? The secret is, let the text say what it says according to its own context and build your theology on that instead of approaching the text with a theological system or a critical perspective and then trying to shoehorn the scriptures into it. 
No, that that's good and simple and obvious advice, Tim, and you don't hear it uh, as often as you should, really. Yeah, sad but true, mate. Uh, we're going to talk a lot more about the passage of time in the primeval history, especially as we get into chapters four and five later on. But suffice to say for now that I don't see conflict between scripture and any dating you care to mention for mankind's earliest ages. And we've touched on that a bit over the last couple of seasons. So I don't see a need to keep pushing back the fall of the divine rebel further back in time. It just leads to inventing stories that the Bible doesn't support. Let me put it like this. I think that the fall of the serpent occurs at the same time as the fall of man, which is what Genesis 3 clearly indicates, as we'll be discovering as we go through this season. And if you want to push back the origin of divine evil, then you're going to have to push back the origin of mankind as well. So as long as you're happy to do that, that's fine. But I think to try and get the origin of sin or the fall of the divine rebel prior to Eden is a big mistake because it disregards what the Bible teaches clearly in search of some kind of hidden truth that isn't there. Now, we do find something interesting in the way that the serpent talks to the woman about God. You'll notice that the serpent does not use the divine name. At first, we might be inclined to view that as a mark of disrespect. But the other thing we have to consider is the notion of the authority of names and the power of knowing someone's name. I just brought that up with the serpent, but now we have it with regard to Yahweh. It's possible that God did not allow the serpent to know his name. But perhaps there's something else at work here. We've already been told that the serpent is shrewd or crafty or cunning or whatever you like there. So it would seem appropriate that he is in fact putting words in the woman's mouth. We can say that because as we continue to read further on, and we'll get into this more next week, the woman herself refers to God in the serpent's own words rather than those that the author uses in Genesis 2. The woman simply refers to her creator as God. I should probably say something here about the nature of dialogue in a story like this. What we're reading is not an eyewitness account with a carefully recorded transcript that exactly matches every word and every phrase that came out of the mouth of the people who are reported to have spoken. The genre here is narrative, and of all the different kinds of narratives, what we're reading here is what we might best call mythic history. The author is going to have this written in their own words under inspiration by God. And the reason I bring this up is because it means that it's the author telling us what was said because the author is communicating to us. This isn't autobiographical. It's not like when you read Ezekiel and it opens with statements like, I saw visions of God. We're not getting the personal testimony of the woman in the garden as told by her. This is a carefully crafted retelling of a story handed down over generations. The use of particular words and particular names is very deliberate. So what's the big deal? I mean, God is God after all. So does it even matter, really? Well, it matters because of a couple of different factors. Number one, as we've already discussed, the covenant name is Yahweh Elohim or the Lord God. So not using that name would seem to indicate that the woman in this moment is not thinking in terms of covenant or her own obligations in that covenant. Number two, it tells us that she's not being mindful of the relationship that she has with the Lord God. Imagine somebody that you were close to talking to someone else as if they didn't know you. Think about how hurtful that is. Number three, this way of talking about the Lord God in the mind of the speaker brings him down to the level of a created God rather than the creator. Because there are many gods, many spiritual entities referred to as gods, and we've talked about that before. Again, back in season one, for those who came in late, I think it was our fourth episode, we talked about the word Elohim and what it means in various biblical contexts. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that it's illegitimate to refer to Yahweh as God, but given the nature of the relationship that Yahweh established with the man and the woman in Eden, it really does seem to take a step away from acknowledging his superiority and sovereignty in the situation. And it seems to be the first step towards self-determination and away from the blessing that God gave in chapter 1. Now, perhaps we're ready to start talking about the question. Of all the questions anybody could ask, there are probably only two questions that really matter in all of Scripture. The single most important question is one that we should all be familiar with, and it was asked by the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, Who do you say that I am? But the question that came long before the advent of Jesus Christ, and which arguably made that advent necessary, is this one. Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? There are lots of reasons why this particular question is so insipid and also so effective. Firstly, when the serpent says, did God really? It has the effect of creating doubt. Did God really say that? Does God actually mean that? Did I hear him properly? Did I understand what God said? Do I trust my partner who relayed the information to me? he understand God correctly? Am I just making this up in my head? Is there something wrong with me? Is God hiding something from me? And so it goes on. Doubt leads to insecurity, anxiety, and fear. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And that didn't sound anything like Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> The dark side of the force are they. That was probably worse. These things creep in slowly. They're not always easy to detect, but as we'll see, they soon had a powerful effect on the woman in the garden. And look at our journey through the scriptures so far over the course of this podcast. What has been our number one pursuit in our Bible study? We're searching the word of God and asking, what does it really say? What is God really saying? Does God's word really say what I think it says? And I look at the understanding of the Bible that I was raised with, and I think to myself, I have come so far, and I have so far to go. It's a lifelong journey, and I hope you all enjoy sharing it with us. Look at the response that the woman gives. Obviously, we're going to be talking about that in a coming episode, but you already know that it was not the right response. You see now why 2 Timothy 2.15, which we mentioned earlier, is so important for us. We live and die by our responses to the word of God and the challenge of the serpent. A little change of pace here. Have you been shopping lately? What's it been like where you live, Chris? Apparently eggnog's pretty scarce out your way. Any trouble getting the essentials? Loo roll? I'm, I'm finding that where I live, there's definitely less stuff available. Thankfully, it's not too bad. Yes, it's, uh, it's pasta. It's mm-hmm. uh, packs of noodles and tissue sometimes, and it's the little tins of tuna, which I really enjoy. Those are the main things, and that frustrates me. But, hey, that's okay. It just means I need to change up my diet. Yep. I'm still finding toilet paper down my way is, uh, uh, shall I say, thin on the ground. Um, yeah, there's there's not much of it. Uh, yep. Very, very scarce. You remember when COVID-19 first hit and people were panic buying and you couldn't get toilet paper? I mean, some things never change. You know, we, we all heard that there was going to be lockdowns and stuff like that. And next thing you know, all the food disappeared off the shelves and the toilet paper suddenly vanished. People want two things and they're afraid. They want to make sure they can eat and they want to cover their backside. And as we go through Genesis 3, we're going to watch that same scenario play out for the very first time. 
What's really amazing in this question posed by the serpent is the reverse psychology at play. He knows that he's overstating the commandment of God, but he wants to see how far the woman will push in the opposite direction. And he's not going to be disappointed. He knows that the woman is going to push back, and when she does, he's going to see where her weaknesses lie by analysing her response. Will she faithfully reproduce the words of Yahweh Elohim that were given to her husband? That's actually a fair question because we don't know if the man really did communicate these things to her correctly or not. In fact, according to the reading of the text that we studied last season, it's actually possible that she was present when the commandment was given since the dream vision that the man had was not the literal creation of the woman but a communication from God that explained to him the woman's importance and value. That means that she could have been right there by his side when the commandment was given and the man was told, you shall not eat of it. So we can't be perfectly clear about whether or not the woman received the commandment from God or she got it secondhand from her husband, but that's really beside the point because the right thing to do when you're in doubt is to appeal to authority. Well, that would be the right thing. We'll see what she actually does next week. Yeah, we'd better wrap it up there, Tim, although I'm really keen to see how this plays out for the rest of our season. Um, so I take it that next week we'll be diving into the response from the woman in the garden. Yeah, that's right, man. Awesome. Well, it's now time for our Q&A segment, so get ready, listeners, as we bring you some answers to your giant questions. Giant questions. 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 You should add, add some reverb or something to that. Giant questions. Giant questions. Giant questions. Oh, boy. <laughs> I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you answer to your giant questions. This question looks like a good one, as they always are. Kim asked, I have a question about all the Neolithic structures that we read about. If these are truly built by the Nephilim with fallen angel technology, why are they pushing stones around and piling them on top of each other instead of building skyscrapers? This has never made sense to me. We're talking about fallen angel technology. Mm, all right. Well, that is a good question. So let's spend a bit of time on it and see where we land. Thanks, Kim, for posting that one. I might just mention too that Kim is one of the more active members in one of the Facebook groups that I helped moderate, which is called the Fallen Angels and Nephilim. That's a good group to check out because you can post your questions and I just might pick up on it and you'll get your question and an answer here on the show. I don't tackle every question that gets asked in that group, but if you're looking for me, you can always tag me in it. And that's what Kim did. Let's get to the question. We're talking Stone Age and perhaps early Bronze Age in some cases, but the really impressive ones are the earliest megalithic structures. We see evidence of human technology as far back as 60,000 years ago, especially here in Australia, but we don't get these monumental constructions like ziggurats and pyramids and that kind of thing until we get to about 5,000 BC. We still have some impressive sites prior to that period, such as Gobekli Tepe, in Turkey roughly 12,000 years ago, but we don't have anything of the really colossal scale that we find in the Aztec civilization or the ancient Sumerians or Egyptians. Some propose earlier dates for the megaliths, but even so, you're not going to get beyond, say, 11, 12,000 years ago. Way back in season one, and I think it was episode four of the podcast, for those who came in late, I talked a little bit about megalithic structures and how they may have been constructed. 
the general consensus was that it wasn't inconceivable for ancient people to make simple cranes and pulleys that would help them get leverage on stone blocks weighing several tons. And that's not going to be the case in every situation, of course, but it shows that humans certainly were capable of some very impressive engineering. We only looked at stuff that was relatively late in that episode, and we didn't address true megaliths from the earliest periods before the advent of things like cranes. Let's not forget that these are people who, even as far back as 4500 BC, were able to calculate the trajectory of asteroids with a precision of less than one degree of error. We actually have an example of that from the ancient Sumerians. You know, those ancient flat earthers who believed there was a solid dome up there in the sky who somehow managed to chart an asteroid's trajectory through space and into our atmosphere, where they accurately calculated the location of the crash site from thousands of kilometres away, which we've scientifically verified. You know, those primitive, stupid ancient people. Yeah, that's right, I'm being sarcastic. We've already debunked the claims that ancient people were flat earthers who believed in a literal solid dome cosmology. And if you missed that, you can go back to season one and listen to our series on Genesis 1 to get all the awesome details. But we still don't have all the answers. Looking at giant stone blocks weighing a thousand tons and shifted miles without evidence of human tools or huge stones that seem to have been melted or levitated or scooped out like the inside of a mango, we still don't know how these things were done. The trouble with technology is that it can only keep pace with human imagination as long as our discoveries keep pace with our abilities. In other words, you might have a desire to do something, but it's not until you discover the resources that will help you do it, and then you realise how those resources will help you do it, and then you devise a way to make that happen, and then you actually turn that into a reality, then you can achieve that dream. Despite being the natural process of human innovation, uh, we haven't been able to follow in the footsteps of the megalith builders. There's a disconnect there. Put yourself in the position of an ancient person who doesn't have metal tools. At the time, you don't know about metal because you haven't found any. Metals usually have to be dug out of the ground. And you've got to ask yourself the question, if you don't know that there's metal in the ground, why would you dig for it? And if you don't have any metal tools to dig up the metal to make metal tools, uh, you're making do with rocks. Except that you wouldn't consider that as making do or improvising or some kind of a temporary measure. Rocks are all you have and all you know. This is it. This is the pinnacle. Yeah, that's a good point. It's hard for us uh, modern people to get our heads around that idea. You know, I can't imagine life without knowing anything more advanced than pointy rocks. Human civilization went along like that for some 40,000 years or more. It would seem that the megalith builders came and went in the meantime. And then along comes the advent of metalworking. Let's assume the paradigm presented in the question and say that humanity was introduced to this technology by the rebellious sons of God. In case you're not familiar with that concept, it's the result of noticing that in Genesis 4, we have what appears to be the advent of metalworking by one of the descendants of Cain. We also have in Genesis 6, the story of the sons of God that took human wives and produced the Nephilim. And in the book of First Enoch, which of course is not canonical, these two stories are woven together to affirm that it was these rebellious sons of God who are known as the Watchers, that introduced the arts of civilization to mankind, which had the effect of corrupting them by accelerating the depravity of the human condition. The things that the Watchers taught the humans, according to First Enoch, are things like magical incantations and sorcery, as well as metalworking and cosmetics and astronomy. And in fact, the angels taunt the rebel Watchers later in the story and tell them that they didn't have the good knowledge anyway, as if to belittle what they did. Maybe the technology of the gods didn't come to mankind after all. Now, I don't know about you, but there's not a great deal in that list that I would consider to be any kind of real groundbreaking technology. The only one that stands out would be metalworking. 
Let's assume that this text is describing the advent of metalworking in line with the paradigm that I laid out a moment ago. There must be more. We don't have uh, history divided into periods of time like the cosmetics age or the lipstick period or the greater mascara epoch. Instead, we have the bronze and iron age, that sort of thing. Yeah, we're talking about the discoveries that really revolutionised civilization, especially in terms of the archaeological evidence that we find. But before I talk about that, let's just consider some of the claims that you hear in the popular media about this event and what it supposedly meant for human civilization in the ancient past. And there's really no end to this stuff. But if you believe everything out there, you'll come away thinking that ancient people had spaceships, that they were doing genetic engineering, that they were working with exotic materials that we can't identify today, that they had construction methods that defied physics. And it goes on. You get the idea. And I mention this every so often, but once again, we've got guys like Zechariah Sitchin and Eric von Daniken to thank for these ridiculous notions. And they're the guys who inspired the Ancient Aliens program on the History Channel, among others who perpetuate this kind of stuff. Plenty of Christian writers and speakers are in this crowd too. This is what happens when you try to interpret ancient writings through the paradigm of 1950s science fiction. So as I mentioned, I've already talked a little in previous episodes about megalithic construction and also addressed the genetic engineering claim from so-called authoritative ancient texts that turned out to be nothing more than a misunderstanding of people eating meat. Uh, as far as things like space travel and alien visitors and all that kind of thing, I think we can confidently chalk that up to a matter of misunderstanding the cosmology of the ancient world, which I addressed extensively in season one of the podcast. Again, science fiction is not your friend. And then we have the matter of monumental construction methods that appear to defy the laws of physics. The issue that we have in that situation is that there's never any witnesses to these construction events. Nobody documents these amazing construction techniques, and we don't have written records because most of these things were constructed in the period before the invention of writing. So that means that anything we have that was written was not written by eyewitnesses. And as I say, we could at least keep open the possibility that these megalithic structures were built with some assistance by supernatural means. But the fact that we can't rule out the possibility doesn't make it a certainty. At the end of the day, we have to admit that we don't know how some of these things were built, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a perfectly logical explanation that we haven't thought of. More often than not, there's, there is an explanation, but we don't like it because it conflicts with the worldview that we prefer to hold or the information we already have that may be misinterpreted or incorrect. But whether we're talking about natural or supernatural construction methods, I guess the real focus of Kim's question is more to do with materials and the nature of the buildings themselves. Yeah, that's right. If we take the scriptures as authoritative, and I certainly do, then an examination of what we might consider to be the technology of the angels shows that we have nothing more than the advent of metal. If you're an ancient Israelite hearing about this as you listen to the scriptures being read out, then you're inclined to consider that it's not a thing to be thankful for because it goes against Israelite culture, the scriptural culture, to invent technologies that facilitate identity, immorality, violence, and warfare. So you don't have things like plastic and glass, carbon fibre, all the things that our modern structures are made of. You didn't have stainless steel or a wide variety of alloys. I will point out, though, that according to the text of Genesis 4, the descendants of Cain were familiar with the use of iron, which was in itself an advanced technology because we've got to remember that the Iron Age didn't come about in the ancient Near East until about the 12th century BC. But the key concern when we look at the technologies introduced at the dawn of civilization is what is the purpose of this technology and who does it serve? Most of the early megaliths were oriented around worship and cultic activity as well as governance and social control. You don't need anything more advanced than bricks and mortar to achieve that even today. 
So it seems clear that nobody was thinking in terms of high-density accommodation or convenience shopping or, or any of the things that we use our modern buildings for. These are the product of a culture that desires luxury and even places it as a higher priority than basic survival needs because most of us are so far removed from the life and death realities of living on the land, we wouldn't even know what to do if we had to find fresh water, eat plants that are not poisonous, or hunt and kill an animal to eat. When we look at the most common ancient megalithic structures, they're usually pyramid-shaped and scattered sparsely across the landscape to provide localised centres of worship. And the reason for the pyramid shape because it is a representation of a sacred mountain. You might have heard people going on about structural rigidity and that kind of thing, like they built pyramid shapes because they don't fall over. Well, that might be a side benefit of the shape, but it doesn't serve a purpose. So when you see a pyramid, you're supposed to think about a mountain as the dwelling place of a god. We talked before about ancient cosmology and the reason behind mountains as the dwelling places of the gods, which basically comes down to the idea of remoteness and inaccessibility to provide some separation between the realm of humans and that of the divine. The idea is that if humans can replicate that environment and provide a mountain for the god, then the god will come to them and provide for their needs. We see this reflected in scripture as well, for example, Mount Sinai and the Garden of Eden. They don't even have to be real mountains or even specific locations. If there's an encounter with God, then that place is the sacred mountain. Jacob had a dream in which he saw a representation of the sacred mountain, which we often call Jacob's Ladder. That's a fairly significant misnomer because we're supposed to have the idea of something like a ziggurat that appears in Jacob's vision. In any case, the point is that Jacob wasn't on a mountain, but the place where he had the dream became a sacred site because he saw it as a mountain. So the reason we don't have things like skyscrapers is that they didn't meet the needs of the people in that time. All innovations are the result of an identified need and some imagination applied to a solution. Nobody's going to invent things that don't serve a purpose. So until people actually had a need for fiberglass and gunpowder and genetic engineering and nuclear energy, then there was absolutely no point in introducing those technologies. Why would they just pile up rocks and build pyramids and that sort of thing? Because that served a purpose. It helped people connect with the divine. In a culture that believed there was no separation between the natural and the supernatural, it was vitally important that you could communicate with the gods or at least find something to keep them happy in order to keep your crops growing and your animals fed and watered. That was how you survived. And that makes a lot of sense, really. So hopefully that's a suitable explanation for the nature of ancient technology. And although it isn't super satisfying or fantastic, it does at least account for the realities of life in the ancient world. We need to remember that things like science fiction may drive the innovations that come out in today's civilization, but even science fiction is based on real discoveries in recent history, which provides the basis for human imagination to perpetuate. Technology is based on needs being met by imagination. I was a kid in the 1980s. I can remember adverts on TV for new products that had just come out, and every second one of them claimed to be the result of innovations developed for the space program. Remember when we got things like Teflon and microwave ovens and we were told it was space age technology. These days we forget that the space age was like 60 years ago, but these products that we use every day were derived from the necessities of space travel back then. Where was Teflon 100 years ago? Hadn't been invented. And the reason why is that you couldn't have created Teflon back then. It's because nobody had identified a need for it in conjunction with a technology that would have enabled it. Instead, we created it out of a need for something else and then realized the benefits of the technology in other applications. We find that same principle at work in all stages of technological development throughout history. Inventions really only follow the same pace at which needs are identified and needs are going to develop and change because as we address one need, we discover more. 
This process is accelerated when you have the luxury of addressing more than just needs and getting into the realm of things that you want. Luxuries that just make things a bit easier or more pleasant. The piles of stone that we marvel at today in ancient Babylon and Egypt and South America are the result of a Stone Age culture responding to a new perceived need, which was to offer worship and sacrifices to a variety of deities. And that's the real technology of the rebellious sons of God, a response to the desire of the gods to receive worship that should have been addressed to the Creator and to the desire of man to meet his needs independent of the Creator on his own terms. We consider these ancient people to be primitive because they didn't enjoy the benefits of the technologies and the materials that we have now. But the reality is that they tapped into something more powerful than all of the world's technological advances combined and unfortunately used it for evil. When we realised that ancient people had found a way to become more than human, to harness the divine within their own bodily nature, and all this without the advances of modern technology, and we're going to be talking about that in detail when we get to Genesis 11, we really are a long way behind. The reality is that if you could travel through time and just turn up in ancient Canaan, with motor cars and fancy architecture, you'd be mocked for turning up with all this useless stuff. It's only impressive if it's useful. It meets a need that they've identified. For Stone Age people, it doesn't get any more impressive than the advent of metalworking. Because that provides a technology that enables a violent few to dominate civilization, And that is exactly what the author of First Enoch was talking about, which is drawn from the text of the primeval history. First Enoch connects the technologies of Genesis 4 with the violence of Genesis 6 and concludes that the rebellious sons of God or the Watchers were responsible for them both. And that is a conclusion that is borne out by the Mesopotamian background of these stories. Also in the Babylonian view, this advancement in technology is painted in a good light in spite of the witchcraft aspect being viewed negatively. So again, we see the polemic nature of Israelite thought and literature on this topic. We need to remember that the Mesopotamian background of the Enochic literature is the same background that informed the authors of the primeval history, so it's not inconceivable that the authors of the primeval history also had these ideas in mind, but their purpose was not to frame it as a commentary on scripture in the way that the author of First Enoch has done. So to wrap this up, I think it's safe to conclude that the reason that we didn't have advanced materials and architecture and any kind of technology beyond simply shaping and manoeuvring stone is because it just didn't serve any existing purpose that the people had at the time. In a culture that's far more intimately connected to an understanding of the influence of the divine in the world, the major concern of civilization was in facilitating contact with the divine in order to secure what was needed for human existence. And now you understand why Jesus taught about not worrying about food and clothes and the cares of this life. He's attributing the provision of all of these things to his heavenly father rather than the gods of the nations who demand worship and sacrifice in exchange for the essentials of life. Yeah, that's a good point, Tim. We don't normally consider that teaching in light of the polytheism of the uh, the ancient world. Yeah, we are going to see as we continue through Genesis 3 how that is essentially the root of all that's wrong with the world today, but that's going to unfold in future episodes. For now, it's time to say goodbye. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. 
questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. I mean, there might be people who listen to the podcast just for that last, you know, 30 seconds to two minutes. Speaking of sacrifices, that's kind of related to Genesis and Old Testament stuff, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> really? Look, I, would, I didn't say it was a good segue, but... <laughs> well, it'd be a good segue into maybe Chapter 4. That's next season. <laughs> okay. We'll do it. Well, just save this little snippet for then. We'll come back to it in six months. <laughs> cut, and, cut and paste then. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Go for okay. it, young man. Let's do it. Okay, look, just focus, okay? Just focus. <coughs> <coughs> I cough because I agree. My thumb is too, uh, um, whatchamacallit. Okay, sorry. Yeah, so what's the big... My thumb is that too. Yeah, my thumb is too thummy and I just scrolled too quickly with great enthusiasm. Um, I've got a new phone and I'm still kind of figuring out, well, it's not a new phone. It's one of the spare ones Adrian had because my phone was from 2016. So this is... Man, these crude thumbs. Indeed. They're good for hitchhiking um, and sometimes using phones. This isn't autobiographical. Yeah, this isn't autobiographical because most of these things were constructed in the period before the invention of writing. Oh, you wouldn't want to have said that. Mm-hmm. 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 Going again. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Yawning. Hello. Ah, 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 ah. Ah. I thought Man, I was going to you, you made it. Million times. Yeah. Um, you stopped short of triple digits. Um, how was the, the sleep machine? Is is it working? Yeah, well, I can see why you'd ask. Um, <laughs> it needs new batteries. What's yawning going on? I get feedback on the on the outtakes. People like it. Oh, okay. Hang around at the end and listen to all our blunders. <laughs> With your observations. Oh, boy. Okay. That's good. It's good material.